So we decided to go travel across the country. I love to drive across the United States, go to the World's Fair and come back across just to experience the, uh, the American landscape and hardscape. I was in the Marine Corps for five years, flew helicopters in Vietnam, and came out in May of 64, got out of the Marine Corps, I had enough of that. Babs was talking around, this is just after he got out of the Marines. He began to assign names to them. He became the intrepid traveler, and these were his merry band of pranksters. Swashbuckler became my nickname. There was just a great deal of general joviality and talking and laughing and dancing. And even then, it was like a troop of minstrels and mimes. Their presence was very beautiful. It's American. Without it, we're a dead nation. Since it turned out that there were so many of us, friends and everything, uh, too many of us to go in one or two cars, we decided we'd buy a bus and we'd all travel together. In the summer of 1964, a very strange vehicle was seen making its way across America. It was a school bus covered in psychedelic colors, driven by Neil Cassidy, a Beat Generation character, made famous in his friends' novels, and piloted by a best-selling author, Ken Kesey. It contained a raggle-taggle crew of crazy psychonauts calling themselves the Merry Pranksters, allegedly dispensing LSD in orange Kool-Aid to all and sundry in an attempt to turn on America. The trip, the magic trip, later immortalized in Tom Wolfe's book, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, was intended to be a counter-cultural reversal of the journey made by the original settlers across the North American plains and inspired by Jack Kerouac's Beat Generation classic, On the Road. When the Barry Pranksters returned to the West, they settled in a loose community around Ken Kesey, author of the blockbuster One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and they commenced a series of crazed multimedia happenings called The Acid Tests. Huge parties fueled by LSD, psychedelic light shows, and the music of the house band, The Grateful Dead. For more of that in a minute or two, I'm Stephen Coates, and I'd like you to come on a magic trip with me to the Bureau of Lost Culture. Sign up for our newsletter and hear about all sorts of oral histories, half-forgotten stories, and countercultural legends. BureauofLostCulture.com Thank you to Kathy, Linny and Dirk for lending us their support this month. We salute you. All right, let's get down to it. In this episode, we leave Soho to travel to the far west of the USA, to a farm in Oregon to meet Ken Babs, the last of the Merry Pranksters. We talked of all sorts of things. Ken Kesey, the magic trip, and the acid test, of course but also Kerouac, Ginsberg, Vietnam, Timothy Leary's spontaneity, the good life, and dreams. And at the end, there's some, I'd say, very positive news about a question that I suspect is troubling many of us. So, it's a great pleasure and an honour to welcome the merry prankster, intrepid traveller, marine, countercultural godfather, husband, father, grandfather, farmer, and trombonist. Hello, Ken Babs. Trombonist. <laughs> Very good. Yes. Yes. I love to play the trombone. Uh, whenever a band comes to town, I try to play with them. You still, you still playing? 
Oh, yeah, sure. All the time. Very good. Well, listen, you know what? I'm going to give you one of your quotes, okay? I love this quote. Every man has a right to be as big as it's in him to be. That's a good one, yes. Do you think you've lived as big as it's in you to be, Ken? Well, I try to, yes, uh, always, uh, and fail all the time. So, But that's part of life. Uh, you get up off the mat and go another round. Let me ask you a question, okay? Yeah. Who is Ken Babs? I've heard about this guy all the time, and people keep accusing me of being him. <laughs> so I have to read up on him and find out what the hell this guy is and what he's done so I can uh, uh, bullshit my way through the conversation. <laughs> Well, let's start off with that. There's many myths. Many myths have been talked about you and about Kesey and about the Merry Pranksters, right? Somewhere yeah. in there is, there, is there a truth or is it all just a series of stories? Well, I think that stories are where it's at and uh, life is made up of stories and uh, stories are what we need to keep alive and uh, keep us hooked, all hooked together. And uh, the story, uh, as Timothy Leary says, it, it was all true, even if it didn't happen. And uh, so many times in stories, you have to uh, embellish and invent and uh, make the story as interesting as you can and have a nugget of truth in there somewhere if it could be found. Yeah, or a metaphorical truth, let's put it that way. But didn't your friend Ken Kesey also say, we don't need facts, we need stories? That's it. As a young man, right, you wrote for the school newspaper, played trombone, played basketball, you're an athlete, you worked on your uncle's farm, okay? It was all going so well, right? You joined uh, the Marines, you went to university, and then you made this leap and to become part of the counterculture. And then what is counterculture? Well, we have to consider the counterculture as just exactly what the word is, counter. It goes against the, uh, it, doesn't ex it doesn't exactly go against the existing uh, uh, big time culture, but it exists alongside it, underneath it, and around it. And it doesn't always, uh, you know, encompass their ethic. A lot of the big time culture is concerned with making money as much as you can. And uh, so the counterculture uh, uh, wants to make enough to live on, but doesn't see making money as being the goal, but there being a higher goal of, of doing what you can to make life better for those around you. Do you think there's always been a counterculture in America? Oh, yeah, sure. Ever so, why do you think we came here, uh, you know, from England and revolted against uh, the English rule, you know, is because for us to have our independence and to do what, uh, you know, we knew was best to do for us and, and to continue that on uh, uh, and why uh, the counterculture is alive and well always in America. Uh, a, a booming voice that, uh, you know, has a lot to say about uh, how people act and react to different things that go on. The, you're born in 1936, right? How old are you? 86. And just for listeners, by the way, um, Ken doesn't look a day over 70, I'd say. If that. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> no, no, good living, uh, hard work, still work outside and do everything I've always done. Uh, I think that keeps you going. And and getting out and meeting people and uh, being part of the uh, world that goes on around. You know, you grew up in post-war America, right, in the 90, late 1940s and 50s. And in some ways, I suppose, that was until the emergence of the Beats. That was quite a conventional childhood for you, right? Yeah, the Eisenhower years were uh, probably as uh, calm and as ordinary as any in the 50s. Uh, 
but it was a good time too. Uh, the freedom you had, uh, particularly where I lived in rural uh, Ohio near Lake Erie, uh, summers on the beach and uh, uh, a gang of guys that we hang out with and on our bicycles would go out overnight camps and our parents never really worried about us. Uh, we could be gone for a day or two uh, camping out and uh, being on our own without them worrying about us. And uh, uh, it is really a, a nice era of freedom uh, to be able to explore the, the countryside and different things uh, and, and the girls. And, you know, the whole uh, experience of high school was really good with sports and uh, and the band and the trombone <laughs> <laughs> well music was important to you was it then oh yes always oh yeah music you know the music of your life is really a thing it's for everybody uh you know the songs of the time uh when uh i was in high school the prevalent songs were insipid love songs but then rock and roll hit uh we get a cleveland um, station and uh, it was one of the first ones to start uh, doing rock and roll, and boy, that changed the music scene. Do you remember what that was like for you when you first started to hear rock and roll? Big Haley and the Comets oh. to go to a show in Cleveland in a big theater and hear them do Rock Around the Clock, which was the big biggest hit in the country at that time, uh, and to see them perform that live, and at the end of the song, smash all their instruments on the stage and get out and romp up and down the aisles. Uh, and with everybody romping with them, I mean that was that was it. <laughs> did, you, did you feel like something's happening here? Something's changing? Yes, very much so. Yes, this was a whole new thing in music and a whole new attitude with young people of having fun and 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 I mean, pot hadn't even happened yet. Mm. For you, you go to college. You're studying English, I think, right? And then you uh, you sign up to a program, which means that the army or the navy pay for you to go to college, but you have to serve then in the navy. Yes, that's right. Uh, to help me get through school and pay the bills and everything, I uh, joined what they called Naval ROTC, <laughs> and they had a scholarship they offered, which would pay your books and tuition and fifty dollars a month. So that helped me out a lot. And then on top of that, uh, when I was in college, I got a basketball scholarship. Right. So I had everything paid for, my room and board and all that. But uh, as part of being in Naval ROTC as a what they called a midshipman, I had to do something in the summer. And one summer I had to go on a cruise on a battleship. And, oh, I hated it. I hated it aboard that ship. I mean, God, uh, the bunk and the noise and the, the awfulness of it and everything. And I was going to get out. I said, I, no, this, I don't want to be in the Navy and be on one of these battleships. So there was a major on there. I was telling him about this. And he said, well, Ken, you don't have to stay in the Navy. You can take what's called the Marine option and go into the Marine Corps instead. So that's what I did. So when I uh, uh, got my commission, I got it as the second lieutenant in the Marine Corps. Really a great move on my part. Also, uh, my first year in, uh, I saw an offer to, or an opportunity to go to flight school in mm -hmm. Pensacola. So I grabbed that right away and went to Pensacola for a year and then uh, came out and went into helicopters. So I was a helicopter pilot. One of the weirdest things that happened was uh, in 62, uh, the skipper called us in and said, uh, pack your bags, we're going to Vietnam. Everybody went, Vietnam, where's that? What's happening in Vietnam in 1962? So we were the first squadron to go there as a, as a unit and, and got involved in, in, in Vietnam. Then. I think at that time, the Americans were just there. They weren't actually bombing and 
killing people, they were sort of in a support role. Is that right? In a support role entirely, yes, uh, uh, which involved with uh, the Air Force doing, you know, all support of the uh, Vietnamese government, you know, against their battle against the Viet Cong. And then eventually the North Vietnamese, uh, they uh, got more into it. And, uh, you know, it grew into a huge thing. Yeah, we were stupid to ever go there, but uh, it was, I liked it. I had a good experience there. I loved the Vietnamese people were wonderful, and uh, the opportunity to see Vietnam and mm-hmm. go to Hong Kong and Japan and <laughs> do all kinds of stuff. It must have been super exciting for young men, right? Straight out of uh, rural America. It was. It was a eye opener. It was, and to see more of the world and more of the people. I just wonder as well. At that time, maybe it was the time when America was loved most by much of the world. America had been instrumental in the winning the Second World War, but also American culture, American music, American style, American values. Actually, in some ways, were kind of spreading through the world, weren't they? And you know, you know, I've done a lot of work in Russia, and the attraction of American values for young. Soviets was extraordinary, you know. I guess in the early 60s time, it was kind of peak America in some ways, wasn't it, right? In a certain way, yes, because it was not only America uh, and the Eisenhower people and the regular people, but it was also this new uh, crowd of people coming up with the whole wild uh, and woolly uh, attitude toward life and everything. Mm But yeah, you know, uh, even though a lot of the people were... uh, didn't uh, join in in the regular world. Everybody pretty much had to have a job and uh, make money you know, and have their house and, and do all the regular stuff too, as well as being, you know, as freaky as you could. Before you went to Vietnam, you'd already met somebody who was to become your companion and a very close friend, Ken Kesey, right? Uh-huh, yes, yes. We met uh, when we both graduated from college and went to graduate school at Stanford, we met there and right away became close friends and stayed good friends for 43 years till he died. Why did you hit it off so quickly, do you think? Well, we were of the same ilk. He said, yeah, our herd of ilk is pretty large, actually. (laughs) We were of the same gregarious mindset of uh, having a good time, but yet serious with our work. And and both of us wanted to be writers and uh, we both had tremendous imaginations. Uh, we would stay up uh, all night with a reel-to-reel tape recorder, just wrapping, uh, make up stuff into the tape recorder that led into uh, many of the multimedia stuff that we did later on. Right. So right from the beginning, that whole thing about actually conversation and recording and being playful, that was there. It was. It was absolutely. And Kesey, uh, he didn't uh, graduate in, in English. It was dramatic arts. Because right. he was in plays and he had to do a performance. And so he continued to do that. Uh, Stanford was in plays. He even roped me into being into one play one time. Uh, he was always a performer. And uh, <laughs> he was a magician uh, in high school. He would do magic. Uh, and he had a, uh, he was ventriloquist. He had a little dummy called Blinky. He'd sit on his knee and, uh, you know, Blinky would talk for him. His dad uh, uh, was a manager of a creamery, and they did a performance at uh, between shows on Saturdays uh, at the theater, at the movie theater. Between the uh, features, they'd have a, a, a stage show, 
And Keezy would always get up there and do magic tricks and uh, uh, talk to Blinky, his uh, dummy. What happened to Blinky? Oh, he kept him. And later on, uh, many years later, we'd be somewhere. And all of a sudden, there would be out there on the stage with Blinky. (laughs) (laughs) But was Blinky on the bus with you? No, he didn't travel. So you guys, you're also both quite athletic, right? Outdoor type, young men, but also you're creative, you're storytellers, you're imaginative, and you're starting to wake up. Had you at this point heard of the beat, this growing countercultural poetic thing? Absolutely. Uh, The the big thing that happened was in 1957 when Jack Kerouac's book uh, On the Road was published. That was something that changed everything for writers and uh, people, uh, potential beats. And the whole beat movement was suddenly uh, big all over the country, uh, you know, instead of just being something in New York City. Uh, yeah, that book changed everything, uh, changed the whole way of thinking about how to write. Uh, it was, uh, you know, the whole notion of, uh, of uh, spontaneous jazz. Uh, could be applied to not just uh, uh, music, but also writing and um, everything and in your life uh, as well. Spontaneity uh, ruled. Do you remember what effect it had on you personally when you read it? Oh, yeah. Enthusiasm. Mm. You are, uh, Yeah, immediately. You want to sit down and start writing like that. Don't think about it. Right. Just sit down there and pound it out, whatever comes. Spontaneity. That's it. So you're aware of the beats. And then the next thing that happens, Kesey takes acid for the first time. Yes. The government was running a program at the VA hospital there in Menlo Park, right next to Palo Alto, in which they'd uh, give people these various drugs and see their reactions and all that, because they were experimenting with LSD and other uh, psychedelics to see how people would react, seeing if they could use them, the soldiers maybe, or prisoners or whatever. And so they wanted to see the effects of that. And so Kesey signed up for that uh, experiment and he'd go in uh, once a week to a place and get paid $25 and they'd give him uh, something. Sometimes it was a placebo and, you know, and then other times it'd be a drug and every once in a while it'd be a drug that was really good. So it it wasn't just acid, they were testing out all sorts of different drugs. Different, yeah, different psychedelics, but different other things too. Who knows what? Uh, but anyway, the other guys, they get together afterwards and talk about what they had and what they did. And they realized this one drug was really good. <laughs> and, and so they decided that when they got that, they would act like nothing happened. Nothing was happening because uh, sometimes they'd give you a placebo or something and they'd test you. And if nothing was going on, they'd just kick you out, let you out. And so they'd pretend nothing was going on. And so then they were out in the streets high on LSD. (laughs) Did Kesey tell you about it? Yeah, Yeah, he told me about it. (laughs) I was very interested in it. You guys hadn't heard about it at this stage? No, no idea. Kesey got a job as an aide in that same VA hospital where they had done those tests on him. And he was up in the uh, room where he had to sit and watch through a window and watch the patients down there in this day room, make sure everything was okay. And he realized that this office right there next uh, in the room that he was in, there was a door went into an office. He realized that was the office of the doctor who had had given him the test LSD. So one night when he was there, he got the keys off the wall and he went over and he found one that opened that door. 
And he went in there and snooped around and he found the desk and he opened the middle drawer and there was a bottle in there and he picked it up and looked at it and it was 500 tabs of, of uh, Sandoz, uh, pure Sandoz LSD. So he slipped that in his pocket and took it home. And that's how LSD got uh, out into the world through uh, Kesey uh, and all of us, all of his friends who go to his house on Saturdays and all that and play bongos and, and strum guitars and smoke a little weed by then. But uh, suddenly here was LSD. So he starts dosing his friends. So do you remember your first experience of LSD? Well, vaguely, I brain cells somewhere, but uh, <laughs> fun. We had, I mean, it was not sitting around. Thinking thought was up on your feet, doing stuff, playing, making up stuff, being creative. I mean, it was it was an active drug for us, very active. We always did stuff on LSD. We were different from Leary's group. Yeah, Leary was very Tibetan Book of the Dead. You've got to make this thing into like a spiritual ritual. It's all quite serious and heady, right? Yeah, and sitting around and being uh, contemplative, you know, mm -hmm. and group thinking and all that. Whereas we were still making up these stories on the tape recorder, you know, and doing all that. But a friend of ours, George Walker, brought a 16 millimeter camera over uh, one time and started, we started filming. Well, and then when we started filming, we really got into it. You know, we'd play parts, we'd put on costumes, we'd be pirates, you know, we'd be gangsters, you know, and we'd do stories and, uh, and conflicts and uh, outcomes, <laughs> yeah, all that, you know, just doing it, uh, spontaneity. Uh, and filming it and uh, and then watching the movies. And suddenly we realized uh, the hell with writing, the hell with making tapes. From here on in, it's movies. Kesey, based on his own experiences, partly writes One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. It became a, a huge success quite quickly, right? Yes, yes. That book has sold over six million copies. For him, what was that like? And what was it like for you that you're one of your best friends, you know, your kind of companion in, in these endeavors and these adventures suddenly becomes this fated best-selling author. You know, it's, it's what you work for. It's what you kind of, you know, are going for. So when it happens, it's great for, you know, it's great for him. It's great for all of us. We all shared his success and we were happy for him, you know, and then I had my own book, uh, Who Shot the Water Buffalo, mm -hmm. I wrote that came out that had a mild success. We were all in the same ballgame. With the pranksters and with everything that you've done, is how did you actually survive? You know, how did you stay alive? How did you feed yourselves? How did you pay for the fuel, pay for the bus, you know, to do all these adventures? Well, a lot of it was money Keezy got on advances from his books. Mm. And a lot of it, and some of it was whatever I could come up with. In fact, anything anybody could come up with, they threw into the pot. So, so we could keep going. And we lived really on the cheap, you know, we didn't have any big expenses. Uh, Kesey, uh, well, he bought this bus like, so we could go to New York on that, and that even was, wasn't that much, um, and painted it and fixed it up and everything. We uh, were able to pay for everything, and uh, when we came back and started editing the movie and we needed more money, we started doing these shows called The Acid Test, in which we mm. charge people to come to them. And that. We, uh, we never had much money, but we always had enough money to keep going. Also, I'm imagining that in the 60s in America, it was probably easier to do that, right, than it might be now, say, so, you know, that you could make some money, survive for a little while, make some more money, 
and just get by, right, without having, you know, the vast amounts of money that you might need these days to pay for health insurance and all the other things about modern life, right? Still doable. Uh, I mean, (laughs) but you do without insurance. (laughs) There's stuff like that to pay for. Yeah, and people live together, you know, and share the the food and the the living conditions and that. Yeah, there's a lot of that still goes on. And the pranksters really came out of friendship, right? It was friends who were hanging out together, obviously taking LSD, but also playing, performing, writing. Exactly right. Yeah, it all came from uh, Kesey's place in uh, there in Menlo Park uh, when we were going to Stanford, where it was a natural gathering places for people uh, on weekends, uh, you know, to be there. And it became a group uh, who went there all the time. And and Kesey moved then. Uh, when I was in the Marine Corps, he moved from Palo Alto down there in Menlo Park up on the hills uh, to La Honda, this place up on the ridge between uh, Palo Alto and the ocean. And uh, it was when he was there that uh, one night uh, when everybody was there, all the friends, uh, he and his brother and I, we went over the coast and down this tunnel and out in this place looking out over the ocean and here came this big wave, like a tsunami. It was uh, uh, from an earthquake in uh, Alaska, and we knew we had to get out of there, so we had to crawl through this tunnel and go back. And it was this was late at night, like midnight, and all the other friends were down around a campfire there. When we came back, Mike Hagan yelled, "Who halt? Who goes there?" And I, out of the uh, top of my head, yelled, "Tis I, the intrepid traveler." come to lead his merry band of pranksters across the country in the reverse direction of the settlers. And so that's when the name, the Merry Pranksters, uh, came about. And we all became then the Merry Band of Pranksters. And you all had different characters, different names, right? Oh, yeah, everybody had a name, a different name, yeah. Yeah. They would call it their bus name because we were filming the whole thing, you know, the trip to New York and back and everything. So everybody had a bus name. And that was their name in the movie. One of the pranksters, maybe more than one, but, you know, who obviously was from a different generation, the old generation, the Beats, right? Neil Cassidy, Dean Moriarty in Kerouac's novels. And what role did he play? Because he was a bit older than you guys, wasn't he? And he was also a connection, a direct connection, right, with that previous Yes, generation. yes. That was one of the greatest, most wonderful thing that happened was when Neil Cassidy came into our lives. He was always interested in writers, you know, been friends with Jack Kerouac and that. And so when Kesey was there in Palo Alto, uh, I remember it was at a party and he was there and this car came roaring in and stopped and it was Cassidy coming. He wanted to meet Kesey. And so he came in and and then uh, we didn't see him for a while. But then the day we were getting the bus ready to go to New York City, uh, Cassidy showed up then and was talking to Kesey and wondering what was going on and everything. And Kesey was saying, yeah, we're taking this bus to New York City. He says, how'd you like to drive the bus and be the bus driver? And, uh, oh, Cassidy was quite flattered and a little bit worried. He was supposed to paint the house the next day. You know, it was his wife. And he had a job as a recapper in a tire place. And he says, well, they can get a couple of weeks off. Oh, yeah. So... He decided to come along and be the bus driver. And it was, I mean, he was just such a wonderful, amazing guy. Uh, some people hearing him because he talked all the time, thought he was just a motor mouth, but he wasn't. He was a guy that was very intelligent. He'd read a lot, and uh, but, you know, he didn't go to college or anything like that. 
but uh, stories, all his talking was a story, but very convoluted, very complicated. Uh, you had to follow it from beginning to end to finally get the denouement at the end. Uh, but if you did, you realize, oh, that was amazing. So we were lucky to have him. And uh, so we had a microphone that hung from the uh, ceiling down in front of his face as he was driving so that he could always be talking because we taped and filmed everything on the bus. So we ended up with hours and hours of tapes of uh, Cassidy. And uh, later on, uh, after he had died, and uh, I got those tape recordings out and I transcribed a whole bunch of them. And so in books I did, I was able, when I had Cassidy talking, I was able to have his actual words uh, when he'd be talking uh, in the books because you couldn't make it up on your own, you know, try to emulate him. Impossible. It'd be so phony. But <laughs> it's really been the real power of all the books I've done with him in there, of his voice. You're setting off on this adventure together to cross America, which, of course, was a big part of Kerouac's books, wasn't it, with Cassidy, this crisscrossing of the continent west to east and back again, etc. It's been mythologized. It's been mythologized by Tom Wolfe. For you, what sort of experience was it? And I mean, how much did acid or other drugs play in that journey? Is it is it as the myth says, you know, that it was an acid-fueled endeavor, or has that been exaggerated? No, not at all. Uh, we were really into it. Uh, we'd take LSD every Saturday at, uh, when we got together. Uh, and so on the bus, we had a jar of orange juice laced with LSD, and, and we'd take it all the time. Yeah, it was really an acid-laced uh, journey, <laughs> you know, feeling good and uh, making stuff up, you know, and uh, being very active. We were always really active when we were high on LSD, playing music, making up stories, filming. Here is a sidebar about Tom Wolfe's book, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test is a 1968 non-fiction book. Tom Wolfe presented a first-hand account of the experiences of Ken, Casey and the band of Merry Pranksters as they travel across the US in their colourfully painted school bus further. Casey and the Pranksters became famous for the use of psychedelic drugs such as LSD in order to achieve expansion of consciousness. The book chronicles the acid tests, the parties with LSD, Lays Kool-Aid, and encounters with notable figures of the time, Hell's Angels, Grateful Dead. And it describes Ken Kesey's exile after his arrest to Mexico. Here are a few quotes from the book. Everybody, everywhere, has his own movie going, his own scenario. Everybody's acting his movie out like mad. Only most people don't know they're trapped by their little script. Put your good where it will do the most. You're either on the bus or off the bus. In ordinary perception, the senses send an overwhelming flood of information to the brain, which the brain then filters down to a trickle it can manage for the purposes of survival in a highly competitive world. Man has become so rational, so utilitarian, that the trickle becomes most pale and thin. It is efficient for mere survival, but it screens out the most wondrous part of man's potential experience without them even knowing it. We're shut off from our own world. Beautiful people, not students, clerks, sales girls, executive trainees. Christ, don't give me your occupation labels. We are beautiful people. 
ascend from your robot junkyard. I make out a school bus, glowing orange, green, magenta, lavender, chlorine blue, every fluorescent pastel imaginable, in thousands of designs, both large and small, like a cross between Fernand Leger and Doctor Strange, roaring together and vibrating off each other, as if somebody had given Hieronymus Bosch 50 buckets of day glow paint. 1939 International Harvest, the school bus, and told him to go to it. Oh, it was always of total interest to people because this bus, mm-hmm. there had never been anything like it in the world, and it was obviously a school bus that had been all painted up, and we were all kind of like clown characters. A lot of people thought we were some kind of a circus, traveling circus. Kids just flocked to it. You know, They knew right away mm-hmm. something was going on. Yeah, even when we'd stop at gas station and get gas, uh, people would start appearing and everything. And, you know, what's really neat about America is uh, like at midnight in a 7-Eleven parking lot, there's something going on. <laughs> there's people out there. They're jiving. They're carrying on. There's, there's, a, there's a scene. And so everywhere we went, that scene would start happening. People would be there. And we'd get out our instruments, and we'd start playing, and they'd start jiving, and there'd be somebody with a boom box, and the people would be dancing, and pretty soon would be a little bit of a party going on right there, you know, just stopping for gas. Everywhere we went, it was like that. And were you giving people acid or turning people on for the first time? Oh, no, we never did that. Some people think that that's what we were doing. We were going around giving LSD to everybody, but... No, we never did that at all. Never gave it to anybody, but just ourselves. Did you have a sense, though, that like with acid in particular, that it had the potential to catalyze the changes that it did? You know, it really changed the culture, it changed music, it changed the art, it changed fashion, right? It changed people's thinking. Did it have this consciousness changing potential for you? Well, it, it had the potential, but it, it didn't really extend beyond us. I mean, the only other group we knew that, we're doing acid and we're, uh, it was the Grateful Dead because they were, you know, our band that played with us uh, all the time. We were doing the acid test and we were taking it together. But aside from then, we, we didn't know of anybody else that was doing it or paid any attention to any of, it, any of that going on in the culture. You know, we were you, very self-contained. So when you got to New York and Ken Kesey has gone there because... The uh, publication oh, of his book, Sometimes a Great Notion. But when you guys eventually got to uh, New York and yeah. arrived in town, this crazy West Coast psychedelic circus, uh, and then you started to meet the people there, what was that like? Oh, it's terrific. Yeah, driving that bus around New York City, uh, it just wowed everybody. Uh, Driving through the streets of Manhattan with people in the streets, just wonderful reactions, uh, just big smiles and waves, you know, and everybody just really knocked out by this thing because we're on top of the bus, you know, playing our instruments and Cassidy's down there talking all the time, bellowing out all the sounds out out into the world. One of the things which I read about you is that when the police or the law got involved, because you'd been in the Marines, you were sort of good at talking to those people, right? Negotiate or communicate well with the authorities in some way, weren't you? Yes, uh, because when they'd stop us, they'd take Neil Cassidy out you could see things were getting a little weird and keys you know i say go out and talk to them babs so i'd go out and i'd show them my uh, identification and it was a marine corps uh, discharge card 
and they'd see that. And so they knew that I was pretty straight. We'd get to talking and <laughs> Neil would get so pissed off at me. He'd be standing on the side, smoking a cigarette and just gesturing and making all these faces at me and everything. <laughs> but we'd get the cops cool out and get out of there. <laughs> so, you know, you come over and you meet Leary and Alpa and maybe Ginsburg and, and that crowd. What was that like? Well, that was real good. Ginsburg was really good because when we got there, it was somebody we knew uh, from uh, Pal Alder. Her cousin uh, had an apartment uh, in Manhattan and uh, she was in uh, England. So we all got to stay there in that apartment. And Ginsburg showed up there and he became like our host, our East Coast host. In fact, he went out one evening and he and Cassidy went out and got Kerouac and brought him over to the apartment. So he hung out there for a little while. He was very subdued, kind of just laid back and didn't have much to say. Uh, and we were performing for him, you know, uh, doing all kinds of stuff. He'd done all that himself, you know. All those guys had those beats and done all everything we were doing. They'd done all that. He was old hat to him. <laughs> yeah, so I suppose for you guys, he's a big literary hero, an inspiration, right? Yeah. But of course, by this stage, his star was fading a bit, wasn't it, as well? And he was... Well, he was a stoned alcoholic. and He he was good. He was He was affable and very friendly and all that, but he was not up to participating in any kind of shenanigans. And what about Leary? Leary, Leary was good. Leary became a real pal of ours. Uh, his scene there at uh, his place uh, was one of uh, contemplation, and uh, but it was also uh, very upbeat, and you know he had a lot of people living there, and uh, good food and everything, and a nice lake we could swim in, <laughs> and we became good friends for all his life. Every time he'd come to the West Coast, he'd come and stay with us and hang out with us, and we'd go and do things together. His life became quite difficult for a while, didn't it? Arrested, prison. Oh, yeah. God, yeah. And then escape from prison, and then off to Algeria or somewhere, and then finally Switzerland, and then being that, meeting that crazy woman and getting busted there and back in jail. Yeah, Keezy and I went and visited him in uh, San Diego in the federal prison. He had to have a name. Everybody there had to have a secret name. His name was Bruno. He, was <laughs> named, he named himself after some Italian philosopher. How did he cope with being in prison? Just like he copes with anything. Leary could be in any scene anywhere and just fit right in, knowing how to do it, getting along with everybody. Uh, yeah, we were in there sitting in this room talking to him and these two guys came in and he jumped up and he high-fived him and they, they jawed for a while and then they went on and, uh, he says, yeah, he says, those two guys are in for life, two murderers. <laughs> and, uh, he, they were, they were buddies. Yeah, that's the way he was. He was like that with everybody. He could get along with anybody. Yeah. He was an amazing guy. Well, he was also a storyteller as well, wasn't he? He was hearing the whole Irish thing. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Go to a lecture by, you know, he stories on the stage, you know, for an hour. He captivated. So you guys, you come back to the West Coast after you, this big trip. And then that's really when you start the acid test, isn't it? These parties. And it wasn't the first one at your place. So we had made this movie. We'd shot this movie on the whole trip. But we did the sound on a real, real tape recorder. We didn't have it linked up to the camera at all. And so when we came back and started to edit, we had a terrible problem because the tape recorder was a 110 high, uh, you know, household current ran on. And so we had a generator on the back of the bus to run it. 
and the generator would run at different speeds and that would affect tape recorder. So we started playing the sound back. It'd be fast sometimes and slow time Ooh. sometimes, but the camera steady 24 frames a second. So we had a tremendous problem of trying to edit this thing, but we'd work on it all week. Keezy and I would work on trying to edit and on Saturday night. We'd this is his place in La Honda. We'd show it and all the pranksters would be there and we'd look at what had been done in that. And then the word got around the uh, Bay Area and people started showing up on Saturday night and became a zoo there at Kesey's house. So he decided, well, let's get it out of the house. So we started renting halls. So I lived in Santa Cruz and I had this house and it was actually a Halloween party. And so we were all there and we all had all our instruments and we were all electrified and everything and playing. And then we took a break and went outside and we were all getting high on acid. And when we were out there, we heard music coming from the house and we went in there to find these four guys playing our instruments. The Grateful Dead, uh, we joined in and we they'd play and we'd play and we stayed up all night and everything. And uh, that people called it the first acid test, but it was really a Halloween party. Uh, but I've never argued. You know, the thing about mythology, you don't argue with mythology. You know, just go along with it. Whatever. Yeah. It was a great story. <laughs> fact, don't let the facts get in the way of a great story, right? Yeah. But then when we'd run in halls, the, you know, the dead would always be there to play. And we'd show the movies on the walls. And then Roy uh, had his uh, uh, projector uh, and he did uh, stuff on the walls. That became the first uh, of the uh, light shows. You rent a hall, you've got the dead playing, you've got other people playing, you've got light shows, and then a lot of people taking acid at the same time. So, I mean, what was that like, you know, with that number of people tripping and with all these things going on around them? Well, it was terrific. Uh, and, and we don't even know how that happened. We never had anything to do with the acid, but somebody did. And the way it evolved was there'd be two uh, garbage cans in the middle of the room, and one of them had a sign on saying, LSD adults only, and another one said Kool Aid only, kids only, because kids would be at these things. People would bring their kids, and so everybody would be high. But I don't know; it was it seemed normal to me. <laughs> Although sometimes there'd be a little crazy people, and so you'd have to cool them out. There was one funny thing happened one time. Owsley, who was uh, the big acid guy, he never took acid, but this for some reason at this one acid test, he got really high. And it was a hall that had this wooden floor and he took a wooden chair and he was pushing it around the floor and the band was playing and he was pushing it to the music, <laughs> to the music. And then out of the kitchen came uh, Neil Cassidy pulling uh, a, a dishwasher. It was plugged in. It was going. Grr, 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 grr. And he was had the hose of the dishwasher. He's running into the hose. And he got behind Owsley and Owsley in the chair. <laughs> and casting <laughs> we're going all around the people in there to the music of the dead if you want to see it i bet that sounded deeply strange seemed absolutely normal <laughs> seemed like a lot of fun <laughs> tell us a little bit more about owsley uh, you know for us here in britain owsley's like a kind of mythological character because his acid was fueling a lot of this stuff right well i don't know he was always kind of a weird little guy but uh uh, really smart, really intelligent, but really private. Uh, he didn't like to be uh, spotlighted like at any of the shows or anything. He stayed in the background. 
but you know, super intelligent. Uh, he and I had our beefs. He <laughs> he chewed me out all the time. But I didn't give a shit. You could irritate him very easily, <laughs> which I did. <laughs> but the dead rented this Marin County, and it had apartments up on a uh, balcony. And Owsley and his wife uh, lived in one of those, so he was there all. Yeah, he was just part of the scene, old Owsley. And uh, he never really was the acid maker as his wife was the chemist. All that business with him spreading acid around, that came later. Another big thing, of course, in your life is that you're involved with the hog farm and Woodstock. So just tell us a little bit about what the hog farm was or is and, and how you got involved in Woodstock. We knew uh, Hugh Romney, as his name was, uh, from New York City, a stand-up comedian who came out west and uh, down there in uh, L.A. He formed a little commune. It was an actual hog farm at one time. In fact, they still had a few hogs. Uh, and they uh, so they called themselves the hog farm. And uh, he picked up the name uh, Wavy Gravy. And he was a friend of ours, so when we'd go down there, we'd always go see him. And uh, in 1969, and uh, it was when we were landing on the moon. Mm -hmm. And uh, Kesey had set up this scene in his uh, barn down there and his with uh, computers and TVs and everything. We had a whole thing set up for the moon landing. And the phone rang, and it was Wavy Gravy. Uh, saying that uh, he was being paid, had all this money to go to the scene that was going to go on in Woodstock, uh, and they were going to be uh, the police <laughs> force and uh, run a kitchen, and he wondered if we'd go there too and work with him. Uh, I said, well, sure, sure. And uh, so we set it up, and uh, they had money, so they were able to uh, – all these people were staying there at Kesey's house that summer. So uh, when it came time, I took all those people off uh, four buses and 40 people and got them all out of there. Kesey was so glad to see them go. And uh, we all went to Woodstock and uh, we were there early when they were setting up and building the stages and all that. I set up a stage and we played our own music on this stage. And these guys, four guys showed up one day and started playing on the stage with us. And they were a band from New Jersey called the Quarry, and they were really good. And they became our house band. And then finally, we moved down to a really great stage down at the bottom of this hill. Free stage, we called it. During the day, I'd let people come up and do whatever they wanted. I remember one day, I heard this voice, and I looked, and there's Joan Baez. That was really neat. I knew, you know, so many of the musicians that the Grateful Dead were always around up there at the there was a free food kitchen for people who couldn't afford food elsewhere. And also you were taking care of people maybe who were like having bad trips, right? Well, yeah, the hog farm also had what they called the freak out tent in which they'd uh, had a cot in there and music in there and all kinds of nice stuff. One time I had a house that uh, had a beehive in the wall and I cut the wall out so I could watch the bees in there. Every once in a while, a bee would freak out. It'd go crazy, and it'd be flopping around. And these other bees would come over, and they'd rub them and uh, you know, be nice to them and bring them out of it. And so uh, 
when people would be freaked out, they'd take them to the freak-out tent. And so I got these hog farmers to go in there, and when anybody was in there, to go there and rub them all over and hum to them and had music playing and everything and, and bring them back, <laughs> just like the bees. <laughs> Ken, we're actually kind of running out of time, but I just wanted to fast-forward you. So the 60s end, you go into the 70s, and I know now that obviously, you know, you've written your books, um, your novel, you've written a book with Ken, with Kesey, you, you know, you wrote together, you've written your memoirs. You're now also a farmer, you're a grandfather. How did you go from that young guy at Woodstock to living the good life, really? Well, when I was a kid in high school, I had two uncles that had farms in central Ohio, and on summer times, I'd go work at their farms. So I got that into my blood, that whole farming thing, and how great a scene it was. And so uh, here in Oregon, uh, at one point, I was looking for some property. And we and my wife and I were driving around, and we saw this uh, sign uh, uh, across a creek. I had one of my kids go across and see what that sign was. He says it's a for sale sign. So I didn't go back over there and write the phone number down, and I called it. With the, this property was owned by... Uh, two old people in Portland. So I called them up and yeah, the place was for sale and they only wanted a small down and a little bit a month with six acres. It was mostly blackberries. I set it up and bought it. And the first thing I had to do was build a bridge across the creek. So we'd go in and out and I did that uh, and uh, went in. And uh, so uh, the, these blackberries were usually were up and covering big oak trees. So I would put an electric fence around there and then I'd put hogs in there. About, and those hogs would go in there and root out the, the blackberries. They were good because goats will eat the leaves, but hogs will go in there and actually eat the roots. They were rooting for me. <laughs> and so we got rid of all the blackberries and got the place cleaned out. And uh, I eventually built a house and uh, it's still here. <laughs> Uh, 72, I brought the property, and finally in 78, there was enough built to live here. I've got nine kids and five grandkids. You and Keesley stayed very good friends, and you stayed in contact with the Murray Pranksters and all these other people that you'd met. In oh, yeah, sure, for sure. And those, some of you still around here live in town, and I, we see each other all the time. And then Keesley died in, in 2001. How was that for you? Oh, it's terrible. Yeah, really, it was really bad. I mean, uh, he had a little spot on his liver and he went to the hospital to have it cut out. Everything went well. He was recovering, but then he caught an infection. And the infection, uh, a hospital infection, that's what kills more people than anybody else when you go to the hospital. And so the infection got him. He never recovered from that. How do you remember him? <laughs> Last night... He and I had some kind of house somewhere, and we were redecorating it. And he was pasting things to the walls. Like he pasted, he glued a tree to the wall. And he did other stuff like that. Uh, we do shit all the time still. You still dream about him? Every night. He's still out there somewhere? Do you, feel, you can still feel him? Well, he's in my dreams every night. So I don't know where he's, he's hanging out. <laughs> Still do shit together all the time. That's really funny. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure and a privilege to talk to you and hear about your life and times. You know, when you look back, you know, um, at the 86-year-old man looking really fit, handsome, right? You look back over all this time. What do you think about it all? I mean, it was crazy, right? I mean. Oh, yeah, it was wonderful. It's terrific. 
yeah, I want to keep going. I want to keep going into my hundreds. I want to, this is, it's still terrific. Everything I still do is everything I always did. I mean, I work outside all the time. I cut firewood, you know, and we've got a farm, work on the farm. And we got, we have a milk cow. We have to milk the cow every day place. Although I don't like to travel anymore. Mm. And what do you think about the state of America now? It's great. Because the neat thing about America is there's so it's so diverse. The majority of Americans are still just doing everything they just normally do. You know, you get up, you go to work, you get, you got your family, you know, you try to keep everything together, you know, and have, live a good life and all that. The majority of Americans are like that. The people that get all the press are the cranks, the kooks, the ones that are raising trouble, you know, and to make you think that the country's going to shit, but ah, it's not at all. It's it's still bumbling along like it always does. <laughs> yeah, and most people live a good life, a happy, a happy life, you know, we have. <laughs> so great to hear that. I love it. Well, listen, Ken, thank you so much for spending a little bit of your time with me. Thank you for coming to the Bureau of Lost Culture. Oh, it was easy. I didn't have to go anywhere. That's the way I like it. Goodbye, everybody. It's nice talking to Britain again. Thanks so much to Ken. I was really cheered by meeting him. So positive and funny and wise. I found what he said about America very reassuring and thought-provoking. I personally try to steer clear of a lot of news and comment myself i've started to see it as the anxiety industry deliberately or not the media channels have monetized fear as it keeps our attention on worrying and getting enraged about things we can do very little about it also makes the activities and views of a minority of crazed psychopaths and self-interested narcissists and politicians the norm all right well anyway lecture over I did forget to ask Ken when he last took acid, though. But I hope you enjoyed this last little magic trip, and thank you for coming on board our bus. Come and join us, bureauoflostculture.com, or come along for another ride further out into the world of the counterculture, the other side and the underground. We will see you next time, and leave you with this track by our sponsor, The Real Tuesday World.